Heavenly Father, we've gathered here today desiring to truly worship you. We know the futility of religion. We know that going through Christian motions does not transform the heart. We are so thankful, Father, you do that by the power of your Spirit when you make those of us who are dead alive. I ask, Lord, that you would be glorified this morning as we look and begin to look at this faithful servant, his ministry so brief and yet so powerful in the movement of the gospel out to the nations. I ask, Lord, that we would hear it so that we could live faithful lives too. That we, your children here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church, would be so overwhelmed by the power of the Spirit, so rightly in love with our Savior, that we would live in such a way that people would see the light of Christ shining brilliantly in us. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for so much of the darkness that still resides in our hearts. Forgive us, Lord, for the testimony that goes forth that does not point people to you and the glory that resides in you. I ask, Lord, that as we meditate on these verses, that you would cause us to desire the same, the same power in the midst of the same persecution, that our lights might shine before men in such a way that people will see our good works through Christ and bring you honor and glory. We desire for you to be magnified during this time. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help a sinful man preach your word, and I pray that you would help sinful people hear it, and that you, through your Spirit, would do only what you can do, and that is make us new. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I'm so thankful you're here this morning. Um, if your Bible's not open to Acts chapter 6, please go there. We, uh, we, get to, we get to look at a man today whose ministry was so brief and so utterly powerful. Um, we're going to start at the end of chapter 6 dealing with Stephen and then pick up in the next couple weeks in chapter 7. But if you've been with us these past several weeks now, you've noticed that the book of Acts is a lot more than just a chronological record of the gospel going forth. Um, we've seen from the very beginning the power and majesty of the Holy Spirit working through faithful witnesses to bring the gospel of a crucified, risen, and now exalted Savior to the ends of the earth. Now, we're not at the ends of the earth yet, but we're moving beyond Jerusalem. We're going to look at how the gospel started to go out to Judea and Samaria, and then as we make it to Acts chapter 13, we'll see that move in the ministry of the Apostle Paul literally to the ends, at least of the known earth then. Um, Stephen is one of those witnesses that you just love. Um, he's going to be someone you want to be at the table with when we come into the presence of Christ. You're going to want to sit next to Stephen. Um, his testimony before the Sanhedrin and his murder um, was not only to give us a, an understanding of the, the work that God can do through someone who's truly committed to Christ. I, I want us to see that certainly this morning, but it also, I mean, Luke's an historian, and so he wants to show us there was a catalyst in this movement, and Stephen was instrumental in getting the gospel out of Jerusalem, into Judea, and to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, St Stephen's brief ministry 
and it was so brief, was a major, significant turning point in the history of God's church. If you remember during the first trial with just Peter and John, they received a severe warning and were told not to proclaim Christ again. Second trial, all 12 are brought in. They're given the same warning, but they're beaten. Remember, they received the 39 minus, the 40 minus 1. This begins the third trial, and it will be Stephen, and it will end in his execution. He will be stoned to death. Now, as tragic as his life is, the ending is, it's hideous to us. It should be rightly troubling to us. It was pleasing to God. It was pleasing to God that Stephen, his life would be lost so that God would use his death to scatter specifically the Hellenistic Jews out to Judea and Samaria that the gospel might go forth and actually move in the plan of redemption that God had ordained before the foundations of the world. We were introduced to Stephen last week, if you remember. Uh, He was called as one of the seven to bring unity inside the church. Remember, he was going to become responsible for the distribution of the daily funds to the widows, the Hellenistic widows in Jerusalem. This morning, I would like us to see how God's going to use Stephen to bring unity again, but not inside the church. This time, he's going to use Stephen's life, his ministry, and most specifically, his death to bring unity outside the church to bring the salvation of Jesus Christ to the unsaved, that there might be unity between God and man again. And so we still see Stephen doing the same work of unification. His ministry is one of the shortest in the New Testament. It's one of the shortest. And what I'd like us to see is that it's not the time that you put into ministry. It's not you saying, oh, I've been doing this 30, 40, 50 years that determines the impact you will have on the kingdom of God. Stephen's a perfect example that what will determine the impact we have for Christ in this life will be our faithfulness. Now listen, it'll be our faithfulness to be the people God has called us to be and do the work God has called us to do. If you live as Christ has called you to live and you do the work that God has called you to do, then you will have a lasting impact now and for eternity. Not time, but presence in the Lord. The goal being to let our light shine before men in such a way that they, in fact, will see the glory of our Father. They will see it, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of fear. So let's have a look at Stephen's brief, but very shiny ministry. Very shiny ministry. And by God's grace, maybe we can get some of that Shekinah glory upon us too this morning and leave here with a renewed hope and a renewed purpose and hopefully greatly encouraged. I want to look at three things from the passage. Number one, the power of the Christian life. Number two, the persecution in the Christian life. And number three, the prize of the Christian life. The power that we have to live in the gospel, the persecution that will bring when we live in the gospel, and then the prize of it all. Why go through this? Why live like Stephen? That's a question you should ask, and God gives us the answer here. So if there were a theme for this today, this is a little more difficult, but I would say it's this. Christians, ugly to the world, beautiful to God. Christians may be ugly to the world, but we are beautiful to God. Point number one, the power of the Christian life. The power of the Christian life. So Stephen's only mentioned here in Acts 6 and Acts 7, and then Paul will reference him again in Acts 22. But what we get in in these two chapters is sufficient, I believe, to cause you to fall in love with this saint. To fall in love with him. We were told last week that he is a man of good repute. In other words, his reputation 
preceded him. He was above reproach, both inside and outside the church. We were told that he is a man full of wisdom, knowing the right thing to do when the rules don't apply. Stephen was a man that you'd want to go to for counsel. We were told, number three, that he was a man full of faith. In other words, he lived his life being sure of what he hoped for and certain of what he could not see. He lived in accordance with God's word. Luke tells us that he was also full of the Holy Spirit. Not full in the sense that he was saved. Of course, if you're saved, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You are completely full. But he was full of the power of the Holy Spirit to do the things that God had called him to do. In fact, look at verse 8. Luke says that Stephen, full of grace and power, those are wonderful combinations, filled with grace and simultaneously powerful, he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So just like the apostles, God the Father, through Christ and the power of the Spirit, enabled Stephen to do signs and wonders, healings, miraculous healings, to affirm that the kingdom, in fact, as we had seen, had in fact come in Christ, and to affirm the testimony of the gospel that he was faithfully preaching. Now, having said all that about Stephen and how we want to meet him, I want to take a moment to make sure that I dethrone Stephen in your heart if you put him in a place that he does not belong. As the first martyr of the Christian church, Stephen oftentimes will be elevated to a superhuman position. In the Catholic church, of course, he is Saint Stephen, and he is the patron saint of stone masters, bricklayers, deacons, by the way, and the country of Hungary, interesting, because of his abilities to exercise signs and wonders, because of the testimony of the Sanhedrin looking at him and seeing his face like that of an angel, and because we, we know how he ends his life where he petitions God for mercy upon those who are taking his life, we have a tendency to elevate Stephen to a place that he does not belong. Oh, he's a victorious saint. And we're so thankful for the work that God did in him. But he was a man, just like you, who needed to be saved by grace through faith in Christ. Just like us. He was dead in his sins and his trespasses before God made him alive. He was saved by the same Savior, indwelt by the same Spirit, and given the same word of God to proclaim to the world. As you. In other words, Stephen lived the way that he lived And he died the way that he died, not because he was a super saint. He lived the life that he lived, and he died the death that he died because, listen, this is profound, you ready? He was a follower of Jesus. He was a follower of Jesus. You say, well, it cannot be that simple, but of course it is. Followers of Jesus are to live as Stephen lived. We must agree with that or we're in big trouble. Otherwise, we're going to make him a hero instead of a saint saved by grace. So some of the things that he was identified as a man above reproach. Um, Aren't we all as Christians to live our lives in such a way that we will be above reproach? In fact, in our own church covenant, in the membership covenant, CPBC, we say this, that we will, being jealous of the honor of God's name as reflected through this church, Walk carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, guarding ourselves from all sin, being a people above reproach, just like Stephen. Aren't we supposed to, as a people, be wise according to the Word of God, indwelt with the Spirit to live wise lives, to give wise counsel, to receive it and live in accordance with it? Aren't we supposed to, like Stephen, walk by faith instead of by sight? Aren't we, like Stephen, supposed to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? 
to overcome sin, to love our enemies, to serve our brothers and sisters in the church, to share the gospel, to make disciples, to care for those in need? The answer, of course, is yes to all of those. So Stephen was not an anomaly. He's not an aberration of the Christian life. He is simply living the Christian life by following Jesus and loving him most. And that is the same for us, my beloved. It's the same for us. And the result was that God used his life and his death in a most powerful way. Look at verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So we immediately know Stephen's mission field, right? Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew. We know that from last week. And he's going to at least this particular Hellenistic synagogue, a synagogue of the freed men, because he knows their language, he knows their culture, and he's able to communicate the gospel effectively. In fact, at the time, most historians believe at this time there were about 500 synagogues in Jerusalem, many of which came from different cultures and certainly different languages. So Stephen, a Hellenistic Jew, is going to a Hellenistic synagogue to preach the gospel. Why? He's a follower of Jesus. This is what followers of Jesus do. We go to the mission field where we can communicate the gospel effectively and we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9 again. The synagogue of the freedmen likely, that was likely made up of, shocking I know, freedmen, those who used to be slaves or children of slaves. Uh, and, and most think that this was a single synagogue that was comprised of the Cyrians, that's a, a city in Africa or was then, the Alexandrians, of course, you know, and from Cilicia, now that's a city in Tarsus. And there's a reason that Luke tells us that. He's giving us a prelude to the Apostle Paul who was from Tarsus. And then he says, and Asia, the whole lot, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. So Cilicia, we'll come back to in the next couple of weeks. Um, there, a lot of the commentators think that Paul was in the synagogue actually debating Stephen on these issues. We know from Acts chapter 22 that he was standing outside watching the garments of those who actually put Stephen to death. But it's an interesting thought that maybe Paul, prior to conversion, was one of the men in the synagogue actually arguing with Stephen. Regardless, they rise up together, they dispute with him. The word is, it's a, it's a hostile word. They are fully engaged. They are fully disagreeing with the gospel that he's proclaiming, that Jesus Christ is their Jewish Messiah. But look at verse 10. We're told they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he, Stephen, was speaking. Now, we don't know we don't know exactly what they were going to go after. Some of the, the text here, as we're going to look at, um, gives us an idea that they're probably upset that he's talking about salvation by grace through faith, and they have a works mindset. Um, they were certainly upset, I'm sure, as he was teaching to the, the temple and the sacrifices in the temple. If we're five years in, five years post-Pentecost, then he was likely teaching to those sacrifices being obsolete because Christ fulfilled them all. Um, regardless of the particulars of it, we're told that they can't stand up to the power of the Spirit that he is speaking. In other words, the truth of God is winning. Now, these were brilliant men, right? And so in the synagogue, in the Hellenistic synagogues, they probably were influenced by Greek philosophy as well. So they, they knew how to debate. They knew how to engage someone. And no matter what they did, they could not compete with the power of the proclaimed word of God. 
they could not stand up. They could not withstand it or stand up to it. My beloved, here's the great news for you. Not a single world view can stand up to the beautiful and simple truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not one can stand up to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a believer, now listen, as a believer, indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit, having the word of God, you have the word of God too, there isn't a soul on this planet that can stand up to the testimony of the gospel you proclaim. Not one. Not the greatest evolutionary mind that you know. Not the most devout and learned Muslim cleric. Not the most devout atheist or agnostic or Catholic or Jew. Not one person can stand up to the simple truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that's a profound statement. If you know that, if you know that, my beloved, then there should be no reason for you to ever fear that when you proclaim the gospel of Christ to someone, that they will be able to overcome that, that you won't be able to stand in the midst of that persecution or that refutation of the gospel. It can't happen. And even if those that you proclaim the gospel to do not agree with you, even if they think they've won the argument, God knows their heart. And most of the time, they know too. Right, we, The power of the word, we just said this. The word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. That's really, really sharp. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of men. When you proclaim the gospel, that's what the word does. That's what the word does. There's no neutral response to it. We either hear of Christ and submit and believe or we must reject him. But there's power in it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is true. It was true then. It is true now. It is true forever. And therefore, it can never, ever be overturned. It can never, ever be successfully argued against. So, by God's grace, first, the point, we've seen the power of the Christian life, right? Through the gospel of grace and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you can be the person that God has called you to be, living the life that he's called you to live, and doing the work that he's called you to do. Stephen is not a Christian anomaly He is simply following Jesus. Amen? All right, you're still with me? All right, so question then is this. Why is the church in the Western world today so seemingly weak? If this is true, if if Stephen is not some type of a a super Christian that God put in the Bible to make us discouraged, because that's what it would do, right? Then why are we so weak? Point number two, the persecution in the Christian life. They could not refute Stephen's teaching. Look at verse 11 again. So they they secretly instigated those in the synagogue of the freedmen. They secretly instigated men who said, quote, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Right? So they they can't defeat his argument. Right? He's arguing scripture. He's arguing God's word. You can't defeat God's word. And so they, they do what everybody does. When you can't defeat someone's argument, what do you do? You attack the man, right? The ad hominem argument, you go after the man. But that's a problem too because Stephen has a reputation both inside and outside of being a man of, of, above reproach, a man of great wisdom, a man walking in faith. So how do you go after someone's character like that? That's hard too, so they don't. They secretly instigate people to tell lies about his teaching. They said, oh, this is, what we, this is how we can get him. We'll go after what he's saying and we'll take what he's saying and we'll twist it Maybe we'll just tell an all-out lie. Now, the best lie that you could tell in Jerusalem at the time of Stephen, if you wanted to really get someone in trouble, would have been to say that they are speaking sacrilegiously against Moses or against God. 
And they decide that they're going to do both. Look at verse 11 again. The instigator said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now what blasphemous, what sacrilegious teachings did they accuse Stephen of? They actually give us the answer. There's recapitulation here in this passage. The false witnesses say, verse 13, look with me. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, speaking of the temple, and the law, speaking of the law of Moses. They come back again in verse 14, claiming that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, again the temple, and will change the customs or the laws that Moses delivered to us. And so they come and they say, listen, we got two crimes, two charges we're bringing against this Stephen. One, that he's teaching contrary to laws of Moses. And if you teach contrary to the laws of Moses in the first century in Jerusalem, you're teaching against their way of life. And they said, number two, he's teaching against the temple, which was the dwelling place of God. In other words, they're saying he's teaching against our way of worship. Teaching against the way of life, teaching against their worship. Now the temple and its order and its sacrificial practices and the priest, which had been exercised at this point for centuries now, it was the foundation of their national worship. It was how they identified themselves in many ways as Jews. And and most believed it still brought glory to God even after Christ became the ultimate sacrifice. But it was also, and most of you know this, it was attached to their economy. So the the temple and the, the worship around the temple and the sacrifices around the temple was very much part of the economic system in Jerusalem. So you go after the temple, you're going after someone's paycheck. You want to make people mad, you go after their paycheck. And so these instigators know exactly what to say to the culture to get them angry enough to go after Stephen. They say he's trying to destroy our way of life, speaking against Moses and Moses' laws, and he's, there, and he, he's trying to um, um, subvert our way of worship by talking against the temple. Now, my beloved, you don't have to have a PhD in sociology to know that if you come at, into a culture and you begin to teach contrary to their way of life or their way of worship, how they live and what they value most, you're going to be persecuted. In the case of Stephen, he was persecuted to the point of death. That's a fast track, right? And we all know that. You go out and you proclaim the gospel in our cultural context here in San Jose, that's contrary to the way of life of most people in San Jose, and it's certainly contrary to what we worship. And so we should expect persecution. Look at verse 12. And they, the instigators, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, Stephen, and they seized him, and they brought him before the council. So we're trial number three. Trial number one, Peter and John. Trial number two, all 12. Trial number three is now Stephen. So the question for us is, were these accusations true? I mean, did, did Stephen really, was he teaching against the temple? Was he teaching against the laws of Moses? Now, we know that as a faithful witness, we know this. He must have been, he must have taught salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. So he must have taught against the law as a means of salvation. We know that. He was proclaiming the gospel. He also probably taught against the laws as a means of staying in the covenant made by God to Abraham. That's true as well. But being filled by the Holy Spirit, he was likely teaching exactly what Jesus taught when it came to the laws of Moses. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I'm not speaking against Moses, nor was Stephen, by the way. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Finish it. But to fulfill them. That's different than speaking against. 
I've come to fulfill them. So Stephen, in proclaiming the gospel, is saying to the Jews living in Jerusalem at the time, listen, all the laws that you continue to submit to, you must realize Jesus Christ fulfilled those for us in our place. In other words, the perfect life that we were supposed to live and we have not, Christ lived and now gives us that righteousness freely by grace through faith. Now, you can understand that they probably heard differently, right? Stephen was probably preaching what Paul said in Romans 10.4, that Christ is the culmination of the law, the completion, the fulfillment of the law, so that, listen to this, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And so this is glorious news, had they heard it correctly, not teaching against the law of Moses, but that Christ fulfilled it and then gives that righteousness to us freely by grace through faith. They didn't hear it like that. They heard Stephen saying, these are new laws, a new way to interpret Moses, when in fact he was only telling them that Christ had fulfilled them. But what about the temple? Do you think Stephen was really teaching against the temple and its worship? Possibly. If we're five years post-Pentecost, it is likely that Stephen was saying, the sacrifices you continue to do year after year are no longer necessary because Christ has fulfilled them for you. So it's likely that that teaching was going forth from Stephen's mouth. But that's not their beef. The beef of the instigators is they said, Jesus of Nazareth, he keeps saying Jesus is going to destroy this temple, tear it down. And we know from the Gospel of John, John chapter 2, remember after Jesus cleared the temple courts of the money changers and the marketeers, remember the Jews asked him, they said in verse 18 of John 2, what sign can you show us to prove you have authority to do all this? You're coming in, you're wrecking our economy, you're telling us all these things about God's house, how dare you, what authority do you have? This is Jesus' response. Now listen, he says in John 2, 18, John 2, 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. So they're thinking physical destruction of the temple and then the rebuilding of that temple in three days. But John makes it very clear in verse 21, this is what John adds to the declaration, the temple he had spoken of, of course we know, was his, was his body. It wasn't the physical structure of the temple, it was his body. And so Stephen, like Stephen during his earthly ministry in Mark chapter 14, we know that Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin, many of the same men, and the, the, the same false accusations came against our Lord. Mark 14, 58, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not with hands, made with hands. So Stephen, like Jesus, was very likely teaching to Jesus' body and not the physical temple. In other words, he was teaching to the perfect temple of God, right? The body of Christ is the perfect temple of God and that Christ would die and Christ would rise. And, and that makes sense, right? Rendering, if Christ was the perfect temple and he was the ultimate sacrifice, then that would, in fact, render all the sacrifices in the temple worship obsolete, which, of course, we know to be true. Now, Christ comes along a little bit later and he does, he does prophesy to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but I don't think that's what Stephen was alluding to. The bottom line is, for these men, truth did not matter. It did not matter whether the accusations were true or false, they were not seeking that. Truth never matters. Listen, it never matters when our hearts are set on a way of life or a way of worship that's not following Jesus and worshiping God. It never matters. 
right? When we've given our heart over to someone or something other than the one true living God, no matter how much truth you hear and how much it comes to you, if you are sold out to that false God or that idol, you will not hear that Jesus is Lord and you will not hear you must follow him. You will not. Truth becomes the obstacle if we're not willing to follow Christ. And those who proclaim the truth, like Stephen, they become enemies and they too need to be removed. And that's why the Jews acted, we're told, in secret. Right? All of this is being done behind closed doors. So they made up lies in secret and they set up false witnesses, literally telling someone, you should say this. Bring this before the court. This is a really good one. Tell them that they're going to destroy this building. So they distort and they twist Stephen's teaching. And what's so tragic is they, they make a messenger of God who is bringing them hope of salvation into a villain. They changed a messenger of God into a villain by their lies. Now, beloved, this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is such an obstacle for so many in your mission field. The gospel comes along, and this is both the beauty of it and the hardness of it. It comes along and it reveals to someone that their way of life and their way of worship is contrary to their creator. Not why they were made. They're, they're image bearers to reflect his glory. And so the gospel comes along and it, it poses a contradiction to the very purpose of our existence as those created in the image of God. I remember ministering the gospel to a young man for almost a full year, a former student of mine. His way of life was not the Mosaic law, it was rationalism. Right? He believed that reason was the means by which we would ascend to all true knowledge. So his way of life was rationalism, and, and his way of worship was his girlfriend. He worshiped and valued her most. So when I brought the gospel to him, and, and I explained to him that a way of life that is truly can ascend to true knowledge is God's revelation that comes to us. It comes to us by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. That reason will not get us. It will not answer the question, where did I come from, why am I here, and where am I going? won't answer those questions. And he knew that, but he had to reject it. When I explained to him that the ultimate worship for any man, since we're all created in the image of God, the ultimate worship for any man is not a girlfriend or a wife or a husband or a career or a pocketbook, but the one true living God. And that worship comes through Christ by repenting and believing and following Jesus. He rejected that too. He came to church for about six months. And like the Jews in the synagogue of the freedmen, he had no way to stand against the wisdom and the spirit of God in the proclamation of the gospel. I, would, I remember him sitting, he would sit on that side and there was just pained look on his face. He knew it was true. I know he knew it was true. He knew it was true, but he came to this conclusion. He said, if I believe this, then I have to submit to Christ as Lord and Savior and Master and King. And this is one of the last things he said to my face. He said, I have no desire to live like that. I have no desire to submit to him. And I never saw him since. My beloved, proclaiming the gospel means proclaiming a way of life and a way of worship that is contrary to the world. Proclaim, proclaiming a true gospel, a true gospel now, means that we're going to teach and preach a way of living and a way of worshiping that is contrary to the way that the world does it. It will bring persecution. It will bring suffering to varying degrees. In the context of Stephen, it meant his life. Now listen, he, he didn't shy away. He didn't flee 
from the persecution because, again, he's a follower of Jesus. He simply loved Christ so much that he said, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is the message I'm supposed to preach. He didn't know he was going to be executed, but he was okay if that was going to happen because he was following Christ faithfully. We're witnesses. We, you, are a Stephen-like witness in a very dark place. San Jose is a dark place. California is a dark place. But you are a witness here to an unbelieving and hostile world that Christ might be glorified through you, regardless of how hard that might be. How do you like hearing that? You say, yes, amen. Oh, amen, I guess. Right, that's hard to hear. All right, number one, the power of the Christian life. Number two, the persecution in the Christian life. Can I give you one more? One more, all right. The prize of the Christian life. Some of you might say, you know, this is, this is getting a little uncomfortable for me. <laughs> is, there, is there an end to this story that I'm gonna go, yes, amen, there is actually in this passage. It's quite extraordinary. Um, why not respond like this former student of mine? Why not hear it? And say, yeah, that sounds right, but there's no way I'm submitting to Christ. Why live a life like Stephen, being the people that we've been called and equipped to be and testifying to the gospel, doing the work that we're called and equipped to do, knowing full well it's going to bring persecution into our lives. It will make relationships in our our immediate families difficult. If I'm faithful to the gospel at work, it's going to bring persecution at work. Certainly, if if I live as Christ lives and I proclaim the gospel, then my neighbors, it will be difficult. What motivation do you have to live as Stephen lived? I mean, you can hear. I mean, you can hear. Now, maybe not in the future. You can, you can fly on the radar, right? You can be a closet Christian. You can even come to church. Most people don't know where you're on Sunday, right? You come to church, play it safe, make sure that you stay uninvolved and detached. I believe Luke gives us the answer as to why this is the prized life. Look at verse 15 with me. Verse 15, the, the final, final verse in Acts chapter 6 is, is one of those verses that's so extraordinary. It is so beautiful and so magnificent and I would say so powerful that if you know Christ and it doesn't stir something deep in your soul, then you're missing what it's saying because it says something so beautiful about what God does in sinners like us. Stephen was standing in the middle of the Sanhedrin. Remember I told you they were a semicircle, and there's no indication that he had any, any, any counsel with him. So the appearance is that he's seemingly all alone. And so after all these false accusations are made against Stephen, and before the Sanhedrin gives Stephen a chance to answer, and he's going to answer them, and they're not going to like what he has to say, we're told here, look, we're told that they gazed at him and that phrase in the Greek is not they gazed in, in Stephen's beauty and Stephen's majesty. It was a gaze of disgust. It was a gaze of hatred. Remember, they had accused him of blasphemy, speaking blasphemous words against Moses, their way of life, and against the temple, their way of worship. And so they're filled with rage. They're on the verge of killing him. And then Luke tells us something extraordinary. They see In him, the glory of God. Look at verse 15 again. And gazing at him, you can say parenthetically, with hate-filled hearts, all who sat in the council saw that his face was the face of an angel. An angel. 
a face like an angel. You say, well, that, that seems a bit strange. When we think of angels, even today, we think of Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel, and you think of little chubby baby faces or little children's faces. That's not the face of an angel of God. The face of an angel of God is either going to terrify you or rightly subdue you in joy. But they see what they're seeing is the glory of God on Stephen. Face of an angel is probably too light. They see the glory of God upon a man they're about to kill. This is so tragic for them. There are only two, there are other, but the two primary occurrences of people with shining faces. Can I use that phrase? I like that. Shining faces, shining the glory of God. You know them. It's Moses when he received the law on Mount Sinai, right? He was he was covered with the Shekinah glory of God and his face was shining like an angel. So much so that people said, you gotta put a veil over you because we can't look at you. And then, of course, the other is also on a mountaintop, not Sinai, but the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, John, and, John, and James were up with Jesus, right? We know Matthew 17 too, Jesus was transformed before them and his face, what? His face shone like the sun. His face was like an angel, infinitely greater. All three men, Moses, Jesus, and now Stephen, they testified to the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men, but they were not messengers of death. Their faces were marked by God, shining faces as messengers of hope, as messengers of salvation. All misunderstood, all actually hated by the world. And yet the message they brought was one of life, eternal life through Christ. One author rightly said this. He said, their shining faces reveal what God made clear to Moses right before Moses' face began to glow. Listen to this. So this is Exodus 34, 6, right before the Shekinah glory comes upon Moses. God says of himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's a message of hope. Hope. My beloved Moses was rejected. Jesus was rejected. And we will see in the next couple of weeks that Stephen will be rejected too. They were all faithful servants, all seeking forgiveness for those who were in sin, not destruction. They were not agents of judgment. They were agents of salvation. Jesus said in John 12, 47, Jesus said of himself, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That was their mission. That is our mission, that we might be messengers of hope too not standing in condemnation of those outside these walls, but desperately wanting them to see and know Christ and be saved too. It's somewhat ironic, is it not, that they accuse Stephen of going against the law of Moses, and here he shines his face with the same glory that Moses had when he was on Mount Sinai receiving the law. They accuse Stephen of opposing the temple of the living God, all aglow with the glory of God. And yet, it was Jesus Christ, the ultimate temple, the living God, who stood upon the Mount of Transfiguration, pleasing the Lord, filled with glory. Stephen was a messenger of hope, marked by God as a gospel carrier. 
yet they would not believe, they would not repent, and so their only choice was to kill him. They could not coexist with this message. Now this is the heart of all men, apart from being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Stephen is not the hero as a man. He's God's servant faithfully following Jesus, being transformed. Stephen, he had reacted the same. Had it not been for the power of God saving him, he would have been in the synagogue of the freedmen persecuting the gospel carrier who came to teach about Christ. You see, my beloved, in order for Stephen's face, listen, with all your might, I want to encourage you here. In order for Stephen's face to shine like an angel of God with the glory of God, Jesus had to bear the face of a sinner. Jesus' beautiful face had to bear our sin in our place by enduring the full wrath of God. Great prophecy, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. Listen, speaking of Christ, I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. Now we know that during our Lord's trial, standing before the same court that his face which shined more brilliantly than an angel. This is the Son of God. It was struck mercilessly. It was spit on. His beard was pulled out, which was a sign of disgrace, and then it was pierced with a crown of thorns. And then we know that he ascended the cross so that his body, living temple of God, could receive our sin in full on the cross as he was forsaken fully by God. In other words, he gave, up, he gave up the glory that he rightly deserved for living perfectly in accordance with the law of Moses. Hmm? He's the only one that's ever done that. He lived a perfect life of obedience to God. But instead of receiving the glory that he rightly deserved, he received all the shame and the humiliation and suffering we rightly deserve for living lives of perpetual disobedience to the law of God. Jesus took the face of a sinner before God so that sinners like us could receive by grace through faith faces of angels. Right? So that you can have on you the glory of God. Faces that are able to shine the glory of God every single day of your life. So how is that possible? It's very simple. By the power of the gospel, through faith in Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven Like Stephen, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Like Stephen, you have the word of God like Stephen and therefore you can live every single day glorifying God in how you live and the work that you do. You are not an exception. You're not an exception. My beloved, this this is the prize of the Christian life. Listen, for now and all of eternity, the prize is Christ himself. Why suffer persecution? For the gospel. Well, the Bible tells us clearly that, that now and forever you will dwell in the presence of God. The Bible tells us actually that the Holy Spirit will dwell in you now and forever. And at one point in time, when you come into the presence of God, and the Bible says when we see Christ face to face, we will be as he is. You will shine the same glory that Christ shines. His beauty, his power, his grace, all shining through you because of your eternal union with the brilliant one, with Jesus. 
My beloved, this is, whether you know, this is what you were made for. You're an image bearer. You're to bear the image of the living God. You're to receive that by grace through faith in Christ and then live now and forever reflecting the beauty and the majesty and the goodness of God. Let's make the purpose as simple as we can, to glorify God and enjoy Him how long? Forever and ever in Christ, reflecting to God and to all of creation how good God truly is. This is, you know, this is your end. If you like darkness and you're in Christ, you're going to hate eternity. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, speaking the day of judgment, and he's going to tell you what you're going to be like for all of eternity. You ready? The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, so all darkness, and throw them in the fire, in the fiery furnace, in that place where there'll be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now listen. Verse 43, then the righteous, that's the church, the righteous then, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. You're going to be shiny forever and ever and ever, receiving the glory of God and reflecting it back to him perfectly because you will be without sin. Now, I, I do believe that it makes sense if that is your eternal state in the presence of God to be like the sun shining the glory forever and ever to God and to all creation, then we should live like that now. Why not shine now if you will shine forever and ever in the presence of God? It makes sense that we ought to live as Stephen lived, right? That, that we want to be a people, a people of good repute in all of our dealings, no matter what they may be, that we want to be a, a wise people, a people living wisely in community, that we want to be a faithful people, faithful to God's word, faithful to the work that he's given us to do, the mission field that lays before us, faithful to our spouses, faithful to our children, that we want to be a people who display the power of the Holy Spirit that truly does dwell in us. I know there are days when it doesn't feel like it. I know there are days when you think, I, I don't know where God is. He hasn't gone anywhere. You've gone somewhere. He hasn't. Walking with the Spirit. Listening to the Spirit through His revealed Word. Being guided, instructed by the Spirit of the living God. So that we might what? Matthew 5, 16 again. Letting our light shine before men in such a way that they will seek our good, see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Believe it or not, you were made to have the face of an angel. You were made to glorify God now and forever. So I, I want to ask God right now in prayer that he be exceedingly gracious with us and call us this morning to live this power-filled life. You are the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit dwells in you and in this church. And we will ask God that we will live the lives that we were called to live, will be the people that we were called to be, and we will do the work that God has called us to do, not in order to earn his favor because we have it in Christ. Amen? Amen. I want us to truly believe in our heart of hearts, like Stephen, that our light and momentary afflictions really are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the testimony of Stephen. 
I praise you for his boldness and his courage in light of a situation that most of us would probably have tried to flee from. I ask, Lord, that you would give that same spirit to us here today. That we would understand that there is, there is power in this gospel that we have received. There is a means by which we can be the people that you've equipped us to be and to do the work that you've called us to do. Father, I pray that you would show us that the persecution that we may know here, especially in the West, that it is light and it is momentary. And that glory, Father, that glory that we have tasted in Christ, that glory that by your grace we reflect to the world, and that same glory we will enjoy forever and ever, I pray, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to desire it, to desire you. I'm so thankful, Father, for this testimony of Stephen. I pray, Father, that, that we as a church would be thankful as well and live in accordance with it. In Jesus' name, amen.